Section 10 of Chapter 18 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephanie Lee. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 18, Section 10. By slow degrees, the whole truth came out. From a letter written at Edinburgh about two months after the crime had been committed, it appears that the horrible story was already current among the Jacobites of that city. In the summer Argyle's regiment was quartered in the south of England, and some of the men made strange confessions over their ale, about what they had been forced to do in the preceding winter. The non-jurors soon got hold of the clue, and followed it resolutely. Their secret presses went to work, and, at length, near a year after the crime had been committed, it was published to the world. But the world was long incredulous. The habitual mendacity of the Jacobite libellers had brought on them an appropriate punishment. Now, when, for the first time, they told the truth, they were supposed to be romancing. They complained bitterly that the story, though perfectly authentic, was regarded by the public as a factious lie. So late as the year 1695, Hicks, in a tract in which he endeavoured to defend his darling tale of the Theban legion, against the unanswerable argument drawn from the silence of historians, remarked that it might well be doubted whether any historian would make mention of the massacre of Glencoe. There were in England, he said, many thousands of well-educated men who had never heard of that massacre, or who regarded it as a mere fable. Nevertheless, the punishment of some of the guilty began very early. Hill, who indeed can hardly be called guilty, was much disturbed. Brettlebane, hardened as he was, felt the stings of conscience or the dread of retribution. A few days after the Macdonalds had returned to their old dwelling-place, his steward visited the ruins of the house of Glencoe, and endeavoured to persuade the sons of the murdered chief to sign a paper declaring that they held the earl guiltless of the blood which had been shed. They were assured that, if they would do this, all his lordship's great influence should be employed to obtain for them from the crown a free pardon and a remission of all forfeitures. Glenlion did his best to assume an air of unconcern. He made his appearance in the most fashionable coffee-house at Edinburgh, and talked loudly and self-complacently about the important service in which he had been engaged among the mountains. Some of his soldiers, however, who observed him closely, whispered that all this bravery was put on, he was not the man that he had been before that night. The form of his countenance was changed. In all places, at all hours, whether he waked or slept, Glencoe was for ever before him. But whatever apprehensions might disturb Breadalbane, whatever spectres might haunt Glenlion, the master of Stair had neither fear nor remorse. He was indeed mortified, but he was mortified only by the blunders of Hamilton, and by the escape of so many of the damnable breed. Do right and fear nobody, such is the language of his letters. Can there be a more sacred duty than to rid the country of thieving? The only thing that I regret is that any got away. On the 6th of March, William, entirely ignorant, in all probability, of the details of the crime which has cast a dark shade over his glory, had set out for the continent, leaving the Queen his vice-regent in England. He would perhaps have postponed his departure if he had been aware that the French government had, during some time, been making great preparations for a descent on our island. An event had taken place which had changed the policy of the court of Versailles. Louvois was no more. 
He had been at the head of the military administration of his country during a quarter of a century. He had borne a chief part in the direction of two wars, which had enlarged the French territory, and had filled the world with the renown of the French arms. And he had lived to see the beginning of a third war, which tasked his great powers to the utmost. Between him and the celebrated captains who carried his plans into execution there was little harmony. His imperious temper and his confidence in himself impelled him to interfere too much with the conduct of troops in the field, even when those troops were commanded by Conde, by Turenne, or by Luxembourg. But he was the greatest adjutant-general, the greatest quartermaster-general, the greatest commissary-general that Europe had seen. He may indeed be said to have made a revolution in the art of disciplining, distributing, equipping, and provisioning armies. In spite, however, of his abilities and of his services, he had become odious to Louis and to her who governed Louis. On the last occasion on which the king and the minister transacted business together, the ill-humour on both sides broke violently forth. The servant, in his vexation, dashed his portfolio on the ground. The master, forgetting what he seldom forgot, that a king should be a gentleman, lifted his cane. Fortunately his wife was present. She, with her usual prudence, caught his arm. She then got Louvois out of the room and exhorted him to come back the next day as if nothing had happened. The next day he came, but with death in his face. The king, though full of resentment, was touched with pity and advised Louvois to go home and take care of himself. That evening the great minister died. Louvois had constantly opposed all plans for the invasion of England. His death was therefore regarded at Saint-Germain as a fortunate event. It was, however, necessary to look sad and to send a gentleman to Versailles with some words of condolence. The messenger found the gorgeous circle of courtiers assembled round their master on the terrace above the orangery. "'Sir,' said Louis, in a tone so easy and cheerful that it filled all the bystanders with amazement, "'Present my compliments and thanks to the King and Queen of England, and tell them that neither my affairs nor theirs will go on the worse by what has happened.' These words were doubtless meant to intimate that the influence of Louvois had not been exerted in favour of the House of Stuart. One compliment, however, a compliment which cost France dear, Louis thought it right to pay to the memory of his ablest servant. The Marquess of Barbesseau, son of Louvois, was placed, in his twenty-fifth year, at the head of the war department. The young man was by no means deficient in abilities, and had been, during some years, employed in business of grave importance. But his passions were strong, his judgment was not ripe, and his sudden elevation turned his head. His manners gave general disgust. Old officers complained that he kept them long in his antechamber while he was amusing himself with his spaniels and his flatterers. Those who were admitted to his presence went away disgusted by his rudeness and arrogance. As was natural at his age, he valued power chiefly as the means of procuring pleasure. Millions of crowns were expended on the luxurious villa where he loved to forget the cares of office in gay conversation, delicate cookery and foaming champagne. He often pleaded an attack of fever as an excuse for not making his appearance at the proper hour in the royal closet, when in truth he had been playing truant among his boon companions and mistresses. The French king, said William, has an odd taste. He chooses an old woman for his mistress, and a young man for his minister. There can be little doubt that Louvois, by pursuing that course which had made him odious to the inmates of St. Germain, had deserved well of his country. He was not maddened by Jacobite enthusiasm. 
He well knew that exiles are the worst of all advisers. He had excellent information. He had excellent judgment. He calculated the chances, and he saw that a descent was likely to fail, and to fail disastrously and disgracefully. James might well be impatient to try the experiment, though the odds should be ten to one against him. He might gain, and he could not lose. His folly and obstinacy had left him nothing to risk. His food, his drink, his lodging, his clothes, he owed to charity. Nothing could be more natural than that, for the very smallest chance of recovering the three kingdoms which he had thrown away, he should be willing to stake what was not his own, the honor of the French arms, the grandeur and the safety of the French monarchy. To a French statesman such a wager might well appear in a different light, but Louvois was gone. His master yielded to the importunity of James, and determined to send an expedition against England. The scheme was, in some respects, well concerted. It was resolved that a camp should be formed on the coast of Normandy, and that in this camp all the Irish regiments which were in the French service should be assembled under their countryman Sarsfield. With them were to be joined about ten thousand French troops. The whole army was to be commanded by Marshal Bellefond. A noble fleet of about eighty ships of the line was to convoy this force to the shores of England. In the dockyards both of Brittany and of Provence, immense preparations were made. Four and forty men of war, some of which were among the finest that had ever been built, were assembled in the harbour of Brest under Tourville. The Count of Estray, with thirty-five more, was to sail from Toulon. Ushant was fixed by the place of rendezvous. The very day was named. In order that there might be no want either of seamen or of vessels for the intended expedition, all maritime trade, all privateering, was, for a time, interdicted by a royal mandate. Three hundred transports were collected near the spot where the troops were to embark. It was hoped that all would be ready early in the spring, before the English ships were half-rigged or half-manned, and before a single Dutch man-of-war was in the channel. James had indeed persuaded himself that, even if the English fleet should fall in with him, it would not oppose him. He imagined that he was personally a favorite with the mariners of all ranks. His emissaries had been busy among the naval officers, and had found some who remembered him with kindness, and others who were out of humor with the men now in power. All the while talk of a class of people not distinguished by taciturnity or discretion was reported to him with exaggeration, till he was deluded into a belief that he had more friends than enemies on board of the vessels which guarded our coasts. Yet he should have known that a rough sailor, who thought himself ill-used by the admiralty, might, after the third bottle, when drawn on by artful companions, express his regret for the good old times, curse the new government, and curse himself for being such a fool as to fight for that government, and yet might be by no means prepared to go over to the French on the day of the battle. Of the malcontent officers who, as James believed, were impatient to desert, the great majority had probably given no pledge of their attachment to him except an idle word, hiccoughed out when they were drunk, and forgotten when they were sobered. One, those from whom he expected support, Rear Admiral Carter, had indeed heard and perfectly understood what the Jacobite agents had to say, had given them fair words, and had reported the whole to the Queen and her ministers. But the chief dependence of James was on Russell. That false, arrogant, and wayward politician was to command the Channel Fleet. He had never ceased to assure the Jacobite emissaries that he was bent on effecting a restoration. Those emissaries fully reckoned, if not on his entire cooperation, yet at least on his connivance, 
and there could be no doubt that, with his connivance, a French fleet might easily convoy an army to our shores. James flattered himself that, as soon as he had landed, he should be master of the island, but in truth, when the voyage had ended, the difficulties of his enterprise would have been only beginning. Two years before he had received a lesson by which he should have profited. He had then deceived himself and others into the belief that the English were regretting him, were pining for him, were eager to rise in arms by tens of thousands to welcome him. William was then, as now, at a distance. Then, as now, the administration was entrusted to a woman. Then, as now, there were few regular troops in England. Torrington had then done as much to injure the government which he served as Russell could now do. The French fleet had then, after riding, during several weeks, victorious and dominant in the channel, landed some troops on the southern coast. The immediate effect had been that whole counties, without distinction of Tory or Whig, churchman or dissenter, had risen up, as one man, to repel the foreigners, and that the Jacobite party, which had, a few days before, seemed to be half the nation, had crouched down in silent terror, and had made itself so small that it had, during some time, been invisible. What reason was there for believing that the multitude who had, in 1690, at the first lighting of the beacons, snatched up firelocks, pikes, scythes to defend their native soil against the French, would now welcome the French as allies? And that the army by which James was now to be accompanied by the French formed the least odious part. More than half of that army was to consist of Irish papists, and the feeling, compounded of hatred and scorn, with which the Irish papists had long been regarded by the English Protestants, had by recent events been stimulated to a vehemence before unknown. The hereditary slaves, it was said, had been for a moment free, and that moment had sufficed to prove that they knew neither how to use nor how to defend their freedom. During their short ascendancy they had done nothing but slay and burn and pillage, and demolish and attaint and confiscate. In three years they had committed such waste on their native land as thirty years of English intelligence and industry would scarcely repair. They would have maintained their independence against the world if they had been as ready to fight as they were to steal. But they had retreated ignominiously from the walls of Londonderry. They had fled like deer before the yeomanry of Enniskillen. The prince, whom they now presumed to think that they could place, by force of arms, on the English throne, had himself, on the morning after the rout of the Boyne, reproached them with their cowardice, and told them that he would never again trust to their soldiership. On the subject Englishmen were of one mind. Tories, non-jurors, even Roman Catholics, were as loud as Whigs in reviling the ill-fated race. It is therefore not difficult to guess what effect would have been produced by the appearance on our soil of enemies whom, on their own soil, we had vanquished and trampled down. James, however, in spite of the recent and severe teaching of experience, believed whatever his correspondents in England told him, and they told him that the whole nation was impatiently expecting him, that both the West and the North were ready to rise, that he would proceed from the place of landing to Whitehall with as little opposition as when, in old times, he returned from a progress. Ferguson distinguished himself by the confidence with which he predicted a complete and bloodless victory. He and his printer, he was absurd enough to write, would be the two first men in the realm to take horse for his majesty. Many other agents were busy up and down the country, during the winter and the early part of the spring. It does not appear that they had much success in the counties south of Trent, but in the north, particularly in Lancashire, where the Roman Catholics were more numerous and more powerful than in any other part of the kingdom, 
and where there seems to have been, even among the Protestant gentry, more than the ordinary proportion of bigoted Jacobites, some preparations for an insurrection were made. Arms were privately bought, officers were appointed, yeomen, small farmers, grooms, huntsmen, were induced to enlist. Those who gave in their names were distributed into eight regiments of cavalry and dragoons, and were directed to hold themselves in readiness to mount at the first signal. One of the circumstances which filled James at this time with vain hopes was that his wife was pregnant and near her delivery. He flattered himself that malice itself would be ashamed to repeat any longer the story of the warming pan, and that multitudes whom that story had deceived would instantly return to their allegiance. He took, on this occasion, all those precautions which, four years before, he had foolishly and perversely forborne to take. He contrived to transmit to England letters summoning many Protestant women of quality to assist at the expected birth, and he promised, in the name of his dear brother, the most Christian king, that they should be free to come and go in safety. Had some of these witnesses been invited to St. James's on the morning of the 10th of June, 1688, the house of Stuart might, perhaps, now be reigning in our island, but it is easier to keep a crown than to regain one. It might be true that a calumnious fable had done much to bring about the revolution, but it by no means followed that the most complete refutation of that fable would bring about a restoration. Not a single lady crossed the sea in obedience to James's call. His queen was safely delivered of a daughter, but this event produced no perceptible effect on the state of public feeling in England. End of section 10